Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. In this special Christmas Eve episode, we read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. We imagine ourselves with the shepherds in the field, taking in the mind-blowing magnitude of their theophany and wondering who are the proverbial shepherds in our society today. We see not only the theological, but the political revolution bubbling up in the story. And we wonder, though the text is silent on this point, was there a donkey in the manger? We're willing to bank our reputations on it. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Bobby. Hey, Amy. How are you this week? I just listened to a podcast where they interviewed Dolly Parton. I think we should totally try to interview Dolly Parton on our podcast. <laughs> yeah, uh, that would be amazing. I bet she's been listening to Bible Worm and it's just like, I can't wait till those people invite me. I can't me. wait till they call me. She had a lot to say about the Bible in the podcast I listened to. I don't know. But Dolly Parton always makes me think of you because your wife is such a diehard. Oh, my goodness. She was Dolly, Dolly before fan. Dolly was cool. Yes, before Dolly was cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My uh, my wife really wanted to name our daughter uh, Maybell after Maybell Carter. You know, they're mm-hmm. the like matriarch of the Maybell of the Carter family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the camp near us, uh, just maybe a couple of months before our daughter was born, got two miniature donkeys. <laughs> they named <laughs> they named them Maybell and Minnie Pearl. <laughs> and oh. so so my wife is like, oh, we can't. <laughs> Like she tells people the story, like we were going to name our daughter Maybell, but then the camp got a donkey, and and I was like, we were not going to name our daughter Maybell. Like that is not the reason that didn't happen. (laughs) But I'm glad you have that narrative. Although if your name is Maybell or you have a child named Maybell, I think it's It's a beautiful, beautiful, wonderful name. Well, I feel like this is great preparation in some way for the Christmas Eve story. In some way that will be determined later. Yes, there's a baby (laughs) and a donkey. There's a donkey. Oh, that's right. Well, there's we were... not really a donkey in the story. But there's not. There's well, a manger. There might have been a donkey. In the pictures, there's a donkey. I'm very attached to there being a donkey in this story, even though there's not really a donkey in this story. I think that it is a reasonable uh, filling in of the context to say there must have been a donkey there. <laughs> Surely there was a donkey. <sighs> we are in Luke chapter 2. We are. Verses 1 through 20 is our reading for today. And we just came from chapter one, so we don't have a lot of filling in we have to do. That is true. Yeah, during the fall in the narrative lectionary, we're forever sort of trying to jump people from one mm-hmm. like, historical context. Like, and in the last 250 years, this is what has happened. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah right. But from now until May or whatever it is, we're just going to be talking about Luke. So then I'm just going to dive us in. You ready? I kind of want to read in the King James today. So I can. Wow. What do we so think you Linus? Could, do we you could be like Linus. Linus. Yeah. Do you want to do Linus's Linus voice? <laughs> no. I don't even know what Linus sounds like. Do you want me to read from the King James? What did, does Linus read the King James or like the RSV? 
I don't know what he does. I think he reads King James. You think so? I do. I think one of us needs to be reading the King James. Do you have the King James? Well, I can look it up online. <laughs> do you have the King James? What a stupid question. <laughs> do you have the internet? Do you? <laughs> he says while they're on Zoom. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm ready. Right? I'm reading King James. That's what's going to happen here. I say, like, I say go no, for it. No, you know what? I didn't study from the King James, so I don't want to read it because it's already raising issues for me. Here, I'm going to Google what version of the Bible does Linus read. He has to read King James. Your King James. King mode, James. So, <laughs> so Google was listening to me. And so when I said, I'm going to Google my, <laughs> my phone, asked me what I wanted. And then... Uh, and then my phone's in airplane mode, so nobody calls me whilst we're podcasting. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so it's like, I can't do whilst. that. Because it's like you're King James. <laughs> I'm getting into the verily. Okay. Yay, verily. <laughs> what version of the Bible did Linus read? <laughs> King Linus James. is King James version of scripture. Yes. Oh, you are right, Amy. Why would I think RSV? Like... <laughs> Normal people. I don't know, Bobby. RSV wouldn't be the go-to for a normal person, especially for a normal cartoon character. <laughs> in a in a Christmas pageant. In a Christmas pageant. Okay, so I'll read from the NRSV, but you can when there are lines that feel like they need to be uttered in the King James, you may <laughs> utter them. Okay, I'm never I'm never gonna think it's important to refer to the King James. <laughs> you might surprise yourself. I might. I often do. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, starting at verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was descended from the house and family of David. Yeah. Let's pause just for a minute here to talk about what what's what's happening. They're going to be registered. It's like a census, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So so what what's envisioned here is a census. You know, normally censuses were for the purposes of taxation. Mm-hmm. In other parts of the Roman Empire, census also probably would have been about proscription into the military. But because mm-hmm. we're in Judea and my understanding anyway is there was a sort of a special dispensation that Jews had in the Roman Empire that they didn't need to fight in the army because of the whole Sabbath keeping thing, which is not a very effective way to uh, be a yeah. soldier. That would be the weak link in the military <laughs> chain. <there>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry, it's Saturday. Um, <laughs> yeah. So so that's what, what seems to be happening here is Augustus, so Caesar is uh, wanting to make sure... He's got a proper census, so they're paying the proper amount of taxes. And so he has declared this census. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, the setting of the Christmas story is this very sort of, it's sort of mundane governmental bureaucracy. (laughs) It's kind of the setting, right? Mm -hmm. The emperor has Mm -hmm. decided we need to enroll everybody. And so so here's here's this thing. I know that there's some issues with census taking in the, in the Jewish tradition. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you are not supposed to count people directly. Uh, it is it is against the Jewish sense of the divine will. So it's in Exodus 30, 
2 Samuel 24, it says pretty explicitly that you are not supposed to count the people. It doesn't really give a reason for why that is. My sense is that it's a, I don't know, that maybe it sort of emphasizes the relative might of a group, whereas you should Mm. be thinking about God's power to make things happen rather than worrying about your own numbers. I don't know. There's not... There's not a lot of information about why you're not supposed to do it, but you're definitely... Does it have anything to do with the fact that censuses are usually about raising revenue? You know what I mean? Like, it's a bureaucratic kind of thing to do, and the Hebrew Bible's a little nervous about, like, the government being overly... I mean, that, that that makes sense to me. I'm just speculating there, but I think that... So, I mean, do you think it would have caused any tension for our very pious Joseph and Mary, pious Jews that they are, to participate in this census? The text doesn't indicate that it, you know, that they even sort of think twice about it. Yeah, I mean, Mary and Joseph do not seem in this text at all to be resistant to the idea. And I mean, you don't know what they said, you know, like on the way, (laughs) like whether they were grumbling about it or Uh whether they're like, yeah, we get to walk 85 miles to Bethlehem. I promise you Mary was grumbling 85 miles pregnant, (laughs) but... Yeah. But yeah, so it's kind of interesting that this text sets the sets the stage in this sort of like, here's an emperor doing what emperors do, which is mm-hmm. make people do things so that they can pay more taxes to the emperor. And this text is announcing the birth of a new lord and savior and king in the line of David. And so in that sense, the text is sort of setting up a contrast between the role of Caesar and the role of Jesus. But Mary mm-hmm. and Joseph... Just do what they're told. So this is not a text about resistance, I don't think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, in the book of Acts in chapter 5, we do get this reference to a fellow named Judas the Galilean who started a revolt during a census time. Mm-hmm. And so, like, there is some sense in which in Jewish, you know, in the first century in Jewish circles, like, the census was understood to be a time when political revolutions did happen. Like people did resist Roman rule in that way. Mm-hmm. But in this story that we're reading in, in, in Luke, Mary and Joseph seem to be compliant with the, with the emperor, whether willingly or begrudgingly, we don't know, but there's, there's not a sense of direct resistance here at all. Okay. I have one more question for you. Yeah. So we know that Romans did these censuses and we have external evidence or you know attestation of some of them but not of this one right i guess my first question is is there is there conversation that you're aware of like is there a question about whether this census whether this is historically accurate as opposed to part of the story the story element that would bring joseph and mary to bethlehem for the birth Yeah, you've got uh, a set of things here in this story that never existed together. And so there's some question about what Luke was doing. Uh, Those two things, those things are Caesar was, uh, Augustus Caesar was the emperor. Herod Mm -hmm. was the king of Judea. Mm -hmm. Quirinius was the governor of Judea. And there was a census. And historically Mm -hmm. speaking, those things don't happen. Herod was king in the time of Caesar. There was a census in the time of Quirinius, we think, maybe in 6 or 7 mm-hmm. CE, mm-hmm. but there was no census in the time of King Herod. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, one could argue that this story is actually taking place a few years later than it appears to be, you know, so Jesus was born in 6 CE or something like that, and some other Herod was king. Mm-hmm. Or you could, I think, more likely just say... Luke needed a plot device that would get 
Mary and Joseph from Galilee to Bethlehem. And he wanted to set it in the time of, you know, in the governmental context. And so yeah. this was a sort of a convenient plot motif to make all of that happen. Right. So it, it could be that Luke has in mind that uh, passage from Micah 5 that says that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And so he's got to get get the people to Bethlehem. Yeah, I think that's right. So Bethlehem is the place where David was born. And so... Mm-hmm. This is the place where the new Messiah is supposed to come from, at least in the in Luke's interpretation. And so we've got to get to Bethlehem somehow. Mm-hmm. You know, Matthew's gospel also has Jesus born in Bethlehem and growing up in Nazareth. But he gets there in a totally different way, where Mary and Joseph just already live in Bethlehem. And then they flee to Egypt. And then on their way back, the angel tells them to go to, no, don't go back to Bethlehem. Go live in Nazareth because it's safer mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And so we've got this sort of agreement in the gospels that Jesus was grew up in Nazareth, but that he was had to have been born in Bethlehem because that's where the Messiah is supposed to come from. Yeah. And so Matthew's Matthew's gotten us in those two places one way, and this seems to be the the way Luke is going to get us there. It's kind of an interesting backdrop. Like, I think it's more interesting to think of this as like, why would you tell the story this way? Or mm-hmm. is there a theological importance to it being set during a, a census mm-hmm. than to think too much about like, did this historically happen this way? So yeah. I, I think it, you, you go down a rabbit hole pretty quick. Yeah, uh, no, I, I I definitely agree with you. I agree with you. Also, this idea that everybody would go to their hometown for the census. That's like <laughs> what other you, level. Yeah. That just like, Do you can know you if imagine? that was a thing? There is, as far as I'm aware, there's no evidence that the Roman Empire ever had people do things this way. Because it would be, it would be kind of hectic. I mean, maybe, pe- I guess people moved around less in the ancient world than they do now. But like, if you imagine like, hey, y'all, there's going to be a census next week. Everybody go back to not just where you grew up, but like where your family is from, right? Yeah. You'd have like half the the country like traveling, you know, it would be... uh, That's why the inn was full, man. Yeah. And yeah, there is no evidence as far as I know that the Roman Empire ever had traveling censuses in in this way. But it's kind of an interesting way to, to set up a story. It it is. It's very interesting. All right, you ready to move on? Can you just talk a little bit about the relationship of Nazareth and Bethlehem? Like geographically? Yeah. I mean, well, I can tell you that Nazareth and Bethlehem are 85 miles yeah. from each other. Yeah. So this is a very significant trip. Bethlehem is not so far from Jerusalem. Right. And then Nazareth is... Up north, right? Yeah, right. Nazareth's in Galilee. Yeah. So you had to go through Samaria. Like, it was a pretty long journey from the the northern area of Galilee Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. Judea. And I don't know if there's any significance to... They are living in kind of... Galilee is far removed from the center. Like, it's it's a long way from the temple. It's a long way from the bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. They're living kind of in this more agrarian area in the north and then they come like pretty close to the center of power Mm -hmm. if you think in those like spatial arrangements and like powered arrangements Mm -hmm. you know they're coming into close to the center of power for jesus to be born and then he's going to go back to nazareth and grow and grow up there Mm -hmm. but yeah Mm -hmm. it's an 85 mile journey from galilee to bethlehem through non-jewish territory in samaria and so it's, it's i mean this is a this is a real journey that, uh, yeah. that Joseph and his family are, are undertaking. Yeah. It's no day trip. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Picking up in verse five. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. 
While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So while at the end of my pregnancy, as I just sort of like walked around the block and ate spicy eggplant parmesan, apparently the key to inducing labor (laughs) is riding a donkey for 85 miles. I hope she was riding a donkey. I mean, yeah, because the options here are... That she was riding a donkey for 85 miles, which induced labor. Or that she had to walk 85 miles. Or that she had miles. to walk 85 miles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember, do you remember this when we were in graduate school and you were pregnant with your first child? And we we, did, we decided to have lunch at this place on Emory's campus. But the parking lot was like, I don't know, like a few hundred yards away. <laughs> and it took me like an hour. <laughs> and I, I was standing out in front of the restaurant waiting for you. And I was like, me. oh, here she comes. And then <laughs> like oh, she's 10 minutes coming. later, I went back and you were you were like... I don't know. You, you're like 50 feet closer or something like that. It was like it was, it was very comical. slow. Yeah. yeah. It was it was comical. My husband gave me a really hard time for that too. What can I say? Yeah. So the eight, like 85 miles of that. Whew. I just, I can't even imagine. Yeah. Are there, do you know of traditions about the wedding of Mary and Joseph? I have to say I'm a little bit surprised that they're still engaged and not married yeah. And she is quite visibly pregnant, and they're traveling around together. Yeah. I don't know. They must have gotten a lot of side eye. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting in the King James to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, which is mm. not what's there, actually, in the in the majority manuscript tradition. There, there are a few Greek manuscripts that actually marry them off before this text. Mm-hmm. And I think for the, exactly for the reason that you're describing, I think the King James translators were a little traumatized that this would they would still be unmarried at this point yeah and even that uh, that second part i hadn't really thought about but what you're saying about their traveling together even though they're not married like they're legally bound to each other in this in this betrothal period but normally you would not have lived together until you're actually actually married they have an unusual relationship they do. I mean, for sure. Like you imagine that like if you're if you're the storyteller, like you want to be clear that this child is not Joseph's child. Right. And so yeah, if, if they've gotten true. married so in the you, meantime. Then you wouldn't want them. Tra- well, I guess it's a little bit late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, and I don't know. I don't know how all that works. But like if you want to if you want to be clear, like if you assume that they have not had sex with one another until they're mm-hmm. married and they're not mm-hmm. married, then like that is protecting against any sort of like argument that actually this guy is just Joseph's kid. That's true. That's a good point. Still, a lot of side eye. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's I think that's right. Yeah, I mean if you think of if you think about this story, like these are these guys are pretty poor, we imagine. Like they, you know, and we as we see, they don't have anywhere to stay. Like they're from the sort of back backwoods region in Galilee and they're unmarried pregnant. Like mm-hmm. when you think about them that way and just try to place them, you know, like in society, like how mm-hmm. would they have been thought about? And I think that's mm-hmm. exactly right. The side eye, like they are not proper people in that sense. Yeah. No. And it is a good, I don't know, a good corrective in some way that like, while this people may have looked askance at them, they actually had not done what people were judging them for, whether, you know, like, yeah, you don't know people's situation. <laughs> yeah. Even though you really might think you do. So, yeah. no, that's really important. Yeah. Yeah. 
And then there's the famous scene that's just so very short. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the the birth outdoors in the manger. I mean, I, I, how, how do you even expand upon this? Like, what do you want to It gives us so little. Yeah, that's so interesting that the way you're emphasizing there, that it's just one verse, but so much... There's so much tradition that has grown up around that one verse that yeah. you think like this is a major part of the New Testament text, but it's it's really it's really not. Yeah. So there's a couple things there. One is this idea that there was no room in the in the guest room or no room in the inn. Mm-hmm. I think that's interesting. You know, it's not as developed. Like sometimes you read this, like they knocked on the door and the innkeeper was like, no, go away. And, you know, this the, the text isn't actually, doesn't actually go there, but it does go to like, I think it's significant that what we're talking about is the birth of the Messiah. And he is born in these conditions where like there's not space for him. The mm-hmm. animals are more welcoming of him in some ways than the people. He's born in a, you know, he's laid in a manger. That idea that later on in Luke, Luke will say foxes have their dens, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And so that's this seems to be sort of setting a stage for what Jesus's life is going to be like, Mm -hmm. where he's always going to be a little bit outside or at least outsider. And he's Mm -hmm. never going to quite have the accommodations one expects to have. You know, as you're saying that, I was thinking back to the establishment of Jerusalem as the center, as the place where the temple would be, as the sort of center yeah. for life in Israel, you know, politically and then eventually religiously also, and how that was sort of like the Washington, D.C., like it was a territory that no one could really claim. Yeah. It was Back kind, in the you know, time like of a, David, you mean? Back in the time of David, yes. It was this sort of neutral area. And similarly, the idea of Jesus being born outdoors in a space that belongs to the animals, like it's yeah. not, you know... It's not, it can't really, it's not really claimed by anybody, which makes it maybe equally owned Hmm. or not owned by everybody. No, I like that. Yeah. So it cannot be claimed by any particular group of people because there was no group of people into which he was born. That's an interesting idea. I have to think more about that, but I, I yeah, I have to think more about it too. It kind of just like wafted through my head. So I might argue against it later, but. So the text is very careful to say that Jesus is Mary's firstborn child, mm-hmm. which raises all these kind of images of the significance of firstborn children in the mm. Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. Is there any connections that you think we ought to make there? I mean, the firstborn son traditionally is understood to belong in some way to God. Mm-hmm. And so there are still today Jewish rituals of sort of the redemption of the firstborn where you there's a, a ritual that sort of redeems a firstborn so so the parent can keep them. Yeah. But there is a sense that, you know, just like the the first fruits of the field and the first fruits of the flock, they belong to God. Like first God gets God's portion and then and then the humans get theirs later. And so there there is certainly a sense that the firstborn son to Mary also would belong to God. So in some sort of way this is like a extrapolation or like an extreme case of that idea that, you know, this kid belongs to God in a different way than other firstborn kids, but not in a totally different way. Yes. It's it. Yeah. Yes. It resonates with, with that tradition that it's coming out of. Yeah. And you always have this sense in the, in the gospel that Jesus never quite belongs to Mary and Joseph, right? He, Mm -hmm. he always is like 
belongs someplace else. He's, he fits only sort of awkwardly into his family. Yeah. And so that might be part of this, part of this idea. So one of my favorite things about this text in the King James, I just love the line, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in the manger. I don't know what it is about that, but something about the swaddling clothes is like really important to my understanding of what's going on here. Yeah, especially having swaddled babies. Did you swaddle your did you swaddle your baby when she was little? We did, yeah. And you know, that changed my understanding of what's of what's going on here. Like I yeah. I knew it was something you did to babies, but I didn't really understand what it was. I always just thought it meant like you wrap them in a blanket. Yeah. But it's a lot tighter than that. <laughs> yeah, to keep and their little comforting. baby arms from flailing around and like yeah. freaking them out. Yeah, and yeah. it calms them down and I just love it. It's such yeah. a tender such a it's tender It's a very image. tender image, yeah. In the Common English Bible which I'm reading, it's she gave birth to her firstborn child, a son, wrapped him snugly and laid him in a manger. Aww. That's sweet. <laughs> so snuggly. I don't really like the NRSV wrapped him in bands of cloth. Yeah. Like it sounds like ace bandages. Like, <laughs> it does. I think like that's probably actually the most accurate translation of all of these, but it does it is the least sort of uh mm-hmm. appealing to your sensibilities. Ace bandages. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh yeah. Um do you do anything with the um significance of the manger in particular? Not just the outdoors, but... So I'm reading out of that Jewish annotated New Testament. Mm -hmm. And there is a note in this edition that says the manger here really means like a feeding trough. Mm -hmm. And the symbolism anticipates the Last Supper. But I will say that I found that distressing, so I ignored it. (laughs) Yeah, I don't quite know what to make of that connection. I've heard it interpreted that way before. So yeah, so here the... Jesus is in the place. Is this what you understand they're saying? Like that Jesus is in the place that you, where animals eat. And then at the end of the gospel, Jesus says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take, eat. Yes. And so Jesus is sort of being Like Jesus is born and put on a plate. That, I <laughs> to don't be like food. that. Yeah. I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of resist that. I kind of resist that interpretation too, but I'm not sure why. Because I don't resist it as much at the last, at the story of the last supper. I'm like, oh yeah, body, body blood. Yeah. But when he's just like a little baby in a, I don't know. Yeah. So I tend to interpret that just as they didn't, yeah, they didn't have a good place to put him. So they put him in this animal Yeah, it's trough. a good shape. It is shaped sort of like a, you know, little. Uh, yeah. Like a bassinet. Put a baby in a drawer. <laughs> there are many things you could put a baby in that yeah. will hold it there. Yeah. Okay, Wait, is this so- where you tell your story about how your parents used to put you in a suitcase? <laughs> <laughs> I I just suddenly Uh, had this very clear image of that. I don't know. Yeah, I don't remember if I told this story last year, but yes, it's it's true. I found an old baby picture of me that my parents are quite fond of because I look like a silly baby. And only after having seen it many, many times did I realize that I was in an open suitcase with like a mobile hanging over me. Like clearly, this was (laughs) this was my place. I belonged in the suitcase. Yes, we had. I had a, a humble beginning, Bobby. I slept in a suitcase. <laughs> that is amazing. Amazing. It's good stuff. All right. Are we ready? Should we move on? I think so. Okay. So picking up at verse 8. In that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. 
But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. Here's some famous lines in there. Yes, what a beautiful little text. This is where I start breaking into Handel's Messiah. No, I won't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so it starts with the shepherds. Yeah. Who are out watching their fields overnight. I mean, there's so many things we could we could imagine about shepherds. Like, it's so it's funny as modern people to be talking about it because, like, I don't know any shepherds. So it seems very sort of romantic and far away somewhat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What would you say about shepherds that might, I don't know, who do you think these guys were? Like, did they have, were they without family? Are they away from their family? Like, I don't know. What What do you think we can guess about the shepherds? I love the way you asked that question. I never thought about it in terms of their families before. But I mean, the way that I think about it, like these guys, in my understanding, are, you know, they're not the people who own the sheep. They're like the people who are yeah. tending the sheep. And so in that sense, they're kind of like they're working the night shift right there. Yeah. You know, it's the middle of the night and they are out like it's their job to be out there protecting the sheep. They're working class folks mm-hmm. in my in my mind, mm-hmm. and I, but I like then their families. You imagine that their families are at home, you know, like missing them while they're out watching the sheep in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. What connections do you make? Is do you read it similarly or, or differently than yeah, that? I mean, yeah, I do. You know, apparently, apparently, I've heard that there are some Christian teachings that that they were seen as outsiders by the Jewish community and sort mm-hmm. of outcasts. But I don't know that we have any particular reason to believe that's true. I mean, shepherds are are certainly honored in some ways in the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. You know, David is a shepherd. and But they're honored in that sort of topsy-turvy way that emphasizes the humility of the work and sort of yeah. the humble beginnings of the of the folks who are doing it. But it is it does seem to be seen as like really honest and important yeah. work that's not like high class, but but is is real and appreciated, I guess, for lack of a better word. I don't know. I was trying to think of what would be a modern equivalent. Mm-hmm. And I came up with truckers. Oh, yeah. I think that's pretty good. Yeah. It's like away from their family. They're doing the long haul drive. It's, they're driving the yeah, middle of the night. They're moving stuff that's not theirs, but it's really important work. Mm-hmm. They have to work weird hours. Yeah. Society depends on them in a certain kind of way, uh-huh. but their that dependence is not always appreciated. They're a critical part of the system, but they're a little bit invisible when we when we tend to describe the system like we might not describe the the truckers. I think that's right. I love that analogy. And I and I love that you're pulling out the like the issue of shepherd also being a positive image in the Hebrew Bible mm-hmm. and David being a shepherd. But you know in that story in 1 Samuel, it's like Jesse is like, "Here's my seven sons who are yeah. not shepherds." <laughs> yeah. Right? And surely yeah. the king is going to be one of them. And then Samuel's like, "Nope." Where's the other kid? And he's like, well, he's out keeping the sheep. So even in that story where David is the shepherd, it's like, but surely the shepherd's not the one you want, right? And so right. you have that kind of topsy-turvy, like you're saying. Um, but then, you know, we then you get Psalm 23, like the Lord is my shepherd. And so that image yeah. Yeah. communicates in these o- kind of opposite ways. Like it's, you know, like not a respected, it's an important but not respected position. And also like this is a way God can be described 
And I think the kind of combining those into one image is really interesting to say that these guys are in some sense outsiders and yet this mm-hmm. says something too about the way about the way that God is. Mm-hmm. So if you put that together, then you've got Mary and Joseph who are, I think, fairly poor from a backwater region of Galilee who don't have a place to live or don't have a place to stay in the inn. And then you've got these shepherds who are, you know, the working class folks of their time. So this whole story is happening outside of traditional power structures. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and the here we're in a manger and the shepherds are out in a field. Like they're not even anywhere close to any buildings, it seems yeah. like. Yeah, there's really like literally and figuratively, I guess that's the word I'm looking for. Like there's this open openness and vulnerability and interconnectedness of all these people who are who are sleeping outside yeah. who are outside the big economic systems that seem to be at play in their society and they're the ones that are having this theophany yeah so then in verses 9 and 10 we get the glory of the lord appears to them does this story well, I'll just say this this part of the story resonates so much for me with Isaiah 6, but I don't mm. know if that's because we just read Isaiah 6. Does it have any particular resonance for you? Can you say a little more? I think that's a really interesting connection. Can you say a little more about like in what way does it remind you of Isaiah 6? Yeah. So in Isaiah 6, there's this combination of like the presence of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, and then also these angels and, you know, that angel plus, I guess the angel plus the glory (laughs) makes me think about Isaiah 6. But Isaiah 6, again, is in the temple, which it's careful to explain to us is not confining God. It's not that God is limited to the temple, but you might expect that particular concentration of presence plus angels in the temple. And here you're just like, you're out in the field with the shepherds. Yeah. I don't know. It really... It's a beautiful image for me to think about the, in, if we think about when we talked about Isaiah 6 and the intensity and sort of overwhelming magnitude yeah. of holiness in that space and how overwhelming it was to Isaiah, who has already into his his prophetic career a little bit yeah. by then, just sort of like exploding out of the walls of the temple and showing up in a field to a bunch of shepherds. I don't know. I, I just, it's it's mind blowing. I love I love that connection. I really do. And, you know, one of the things that I was thinking is I'm so accustomed to like the way that I grew up seeing this pictured that I actually totally miss that the glory of the Lord is a different thing <laughs> than the angel. Like, I just mm-hmm. think of like the angels are like shiny or something. But but you're exactly right. Like the glory of the Lord is there and the angel is also there. And that connection, you know, I have often seen this as like, you know, like the angel is like, has a soft glow and is like, you know, a very gentle and meek and mild. But when you put it in the context of the seraphim in the temple and they're like fire, smoke breath and their thunder voices. Like earthquakes every time yeah. they say glory, glory, glory. Yeah. I love that. Like I, to me, that sort of like, that startles me back to a different kind of reading of this text. And that the notion of these folks are now, now God is showing up in the field four miles from the temple instead mm-hmm. of actually mm-hmm. in the temple that seems really important. Like the presence of God can be, is not confined mm-hmm. or, or even maybe here, not even centrally located in the religious structure. Yes. I th- yes. I like that. I like that second nuance because it's mm-hmm. never really confined. That's but, right. That's right. But it is, yes, now it is. It's central concentration is somewhere else. Yeah. Which is 
pretty cool. So no wonder these shepherds are like scared to death. That was the appropriate <laughs> response. Yes. Terror yeah. is the appropriate response. The, the King James, you know, is, and they were sore afraid, which I don't like, I don't <laughs> use that phrase, but I love that. They were so, so <laughs> they were sore afraid. Like, mm-hmm, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's two references in here in verse 10. I bring good news to you. Wonderful, joyous news for in the CEB for all people. In the NRSV, was it for all the people? Uh, yes, I think so. And then a little further down, glory to God in heaven and on earth, peace among those whom he favors, mm-hmm. is the CEB. Mm-hmm. Yes, we have the same. I have the same. Who is this good news for? Is it for everybody or for some people? I mean, all the people or all people sounds... Wow, you're right. The addition of the... It makes a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know, Bobby. <laughs> I had not honed in on that question in my reading. To me, all the people sounds like it's a reference to the to the Jews, to the people of Israel. Mm-hmm. If, if an angel shows up to you, you know, Jewish shepherd and says to all the people, I think you're probably thinking to, you know, the chosen people. Mm-hmm. So then, so there it seems like it's a little bit confined to a particular community, although Luke's gospel is kind of famously Gentile-oriented. Yeah, famously not confined. Yeah. Yeah. And so I don't quite know what to do with that. So I was reading um, an introduction to Luke for one of my classes, written by Mark Allen Powell, Mm -hmm. and he notes that that verse 14 could be read. He says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among people with whom God is pleased. Or glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace among people, comma, with whom God is pleased. Ah. And he argues that like the Greek can be read either one of those ways. So in the first case, it's like with people, like particular people with whom God is pleased. And in the second case, it's with people mm-hmm. because God is pleased with people. And right. then that has a sort of more embracing sense. Right. And I just thought that was really interesting. And he, he's like, you know, and I think he's probably right here that the Greek grammar doesn't settle that question. It has sort of an ambiguity to it about Mm -hmm. which way do you choose to read that. There are particular people that God is pleased with or that God is pleased with people, generally speaking. I mean, I I feel like saying that God is generally pleased with people, that seems like a big step. (laughs) A big ask. (laughs) No, well, I mean, that's lovely. I don't feel like I have, I don't, I don't know. That feels like a, uh, that feels like a, a step from the theologies that I'm accustomed to, that God is generally speaking pleased with people just on the, fa- you know, like not, yeah. f- you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, you know I do. I mean? But I, I like the step. Yeah, <laughs> I do too. Like my, um, my own self-interested theological self wants to read it the, the second way for sure, that God yeah. is pleased with people. And therefore here comes this story about Jesus. But I take your point that this, Given where we've come from, this does not seem to always be to be the mode. But there's a sort of, you know, does this does this gospel have a universalizing tendency mm-hmm. or does it not, I think, is, is the question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Powell ends up arguing that a, a, a first century person would have heard it in both those ways simultaneously. And, would, and it would have raised exactly this question, which is a nice biblical scholar I thing to that. say. No, <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah. yeah. So in an interesting way, it kind of like if you if you tend toward the narrow version, it sort of expands your yes. thoughts about God's embrace a little bit. But if yes. you lend, tend toward the expansive version, it tends to make you narrow a little bit. I love that. It it pulls you a little, it meets you where you are and pulls you a little bit 
towards mm-hmm. a midpoint. <laughs> yeah. God is yeah. gracious, but don't get don't get too comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> kind of yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So in verse 11, there's a few uh, descriptors used for Jesus. Those yeah. are uh, Savior, Christ, Lord. Mm-hmm. That's quite a, a set of titles <laughs> right there. <laughs> I know. You know, what stood out to me the most in those few words of text were putting right next to each other Messiah or Christ, like the anointed one and the Lord. Yeah. Because I am, it does not, it doesn't surprise me to hear the anointed one who in a Hebrew Bible mindset is the king, the adopted son of God, the savior. All of these are appropriate descriptions of a Messiah figure coming from a Hebrew Bible mindset. But the Lord... If they mean like the Lord, the Lord, like capital L, that's that that would be a difference. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> from what I've from what I've seen in the Hebrew Bible. So when you say that, you're reading that as like the name of like the proper name of God. Lord. If that's what they mean, yes, and yes, if that's what they mean, yeah. And I mean, I think the text is because the you know the Greek there is kurios, which is the way that tetragrammaton is translated in the Septuagint. So. Mm-hmm. That is a very much a, a live reading of this text is that that's what's being claimed is this Christ yeah. is the God who revealed God's self to Moses in Exodus chapter three, which is a big claim. <laughs> yeah, you're I right. know. I kind of feel like they buried the lead in that sentence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's that's big. That feels like a really big. Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. The other resonances for those first term savior and the last term lord is that those are titles that were given also to Caesar Augustus, mm-hmm. um, the savior of the world and the lord of the world. And so there's also that political resonance of those two mm-hmm. titles that say, you know, we're in this story that is about the unfolding of, you know, taxation from the emperor and here we have the birth of a baby out, you know, in the mm-hmm. woods who's going to claim those titles for himself, but he's going to do it away from the centers of power. Like, so there's a political edge and then there's a religious edge. And it's not entirely clear which of those we're meant to like take up or, or not, but it surely yeah. puts us in the realm where we're thinking about all those things. And, and maybe the text is trying to get us to think about, you know, all of that at the same time. Yeah. I love, I love the complexity of that with all the different, different political and religious resonances. I love yeah. it. And that verse is so familiar. Like, it's easy just to shrug that verse off. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, yeah. yeah. But there's so much packed in. Like, this is your savior, Christ the Lord. Like, that's an enormous thing to say. But when you read this text as often as someone like me reads it anyway, you sort of forget that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big one. (laughs) (laughs) It's a big one. So I mentioned before that this this passage makes me think of Isaiah 6. Mm Mm-hmm. And in Isaiah 6, we get to hear the angels praising God. Yeah. And they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His presence fills the earth. And so I started thinking about sort of like a little compare contrast to, again, we hear the angels and the the multitude of the heavenly host praising God here, worshiping God. And they say, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace among those whom he favors. Yeah. And so I guess I'm just interested in, uh, do those things feel similar, those types of praise or importantly different in some way? I don't have, I don't really know what I think about it. I'm thinking about like the relative emphasis on earth versus heaven. 
I don't know. Do you think there's anything worth thinking about in there, in that comparison? I mean, the first thing that I think about there is that Isaiah saw two seraphim, and these shepherds see the heavenly army. (laughs) Mm. Um, (laughs) Like, I mean, I don't know how many angels we're supposed to be envisioning here, but like the heavenly forces, like that is a thing, right? So boom, instead of two, there's like, I don't know. 2000 and they're singing in this, you know, this is like a shocking, like here's the power of God sort of on full display. Yeah. yeah. And so that's the first thing that, that I kind of think about, but, but there, this army is singing about peace on earth, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of fascinating to have this, you know, the heavenly. That, I love that. That sort of juxtaposition of the enormous and terrifying power that you're witnessing yeah. singing about peace. I don't know as much what to do with the glory to God versus the holy, holy, holy. Yeah. Those seem different to me. Like it's less about declaring God's special status and more about making sure God receives proper praise. Mm -hmm. But I don't really know. I hadn't really thought about that before. Where Where do you go when you think about that? I don't know. I feel like I might be pressing too hard on this and it's not, it's not where I ought to be pressing. But I mean, holy... The idea of holiness is the idea of being sort of set apart, like fundamentally yeah. and definitionally different from from everyday things, from other things, from mundane things. Yeah. Whereas glory, you're right, like glory, I'm, I mean, I'm thinking of it in Hebrew, not in Greek, but like kavod is like the weight of something, the gravitas of something, mm, sort of like yeah. appreciating the, the magnitude of something. And it's less focused on it being set apart, but more focused on its import. It's, you know, yeah, I don't know, weightiness. I think that's a nice interpretation. And, you know, glory would also be something ascribed to Caesar if you want to follow that line of thinking, too. And yes, so glory Caesar can comes be ascribed to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so here you have an army singing about peace, giving glory to God instead of to Caesar. Mm-hmm. Caesar would not be said to be holy in that sense. And so, mm-hmm. I, you know, maybe there's, maybe yeah, there's no, a, you're right. an edge That's in that That's a nice way. connection too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the last little thing from this chunk of text that we should underscore is the sign, right? The shepherds get this announcement of the birth and then they're told that the sign will be, they will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. Which to me is just sort of a funny sign. Like the sign is, go look at the baby. Like I told you there was <laughs> yeah. a baby. Go find it. That's your sign. Yeah. No, that makes And yeah, the, your sign. Yes, I love that. The sign that this is true is that you can go look at it and see that it is true. <laughs> <laughs> Although the, 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 the manger piece, I guess, is the, you know. Yeah. One wouldn't have guessed necessarily that the baby would be in a manger. Yeah. So if you find a baby in a manger then that's a sign. Yeah, I mean, there's some, there's, that's true. There's something unusual here. And the claim that they've just made is your savior is born today in David's city is Christ the Lord. Like that's a huge claim. And so then to say that your sign that this is true is that there's a baby in the manger, which is an unusual thing that one would not just find every day. Yeah. So here's this sort of mundane sounding thing, but slightly unusual. That's confirmation of this big, this big claim that we're making. Mm -hmm. And as readers, we've just been told that that's exactly the position of the kids. So like, as we hear the angel saying, here's what you're going to see, we already have seen it. And so it's confirmation for us in kind of an interesting way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So let's pick up in verse 15 and see what these shepherds think of all this. 
When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. When they saw this, they made known what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the shepherds go to look for this sign to try to you know confirm the information, and of course, they find it. And then immediately when they find it, they... It says they they made known what had been told to them, and all who heard it were amazed. Yeah. Are you picturing more people there than Joseph and Mary? Yeah, that's an interesting detail, isn't it? Because you're led to believe that what's happening is just they're going to see this, you know, Mary, Joseph, and baby. And then you just get that sort of incidentally said, all the people. I mean, if you imagine that Bethlehem is kind of a crowded place, as it seems to be, because there's not room for them any place, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. there's probably that's other true. people around, so people have been like what the heck, there's a baby in that manger. Or, you know, like, you know, birthing is not a subtle thing (laughs) that one does. (laughs) And so, Quietly in the background, Mary had a baby. (laughs) Yeah. Hi. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so we haven't heard anything else about these people, but it seems seems reasonable to me that that people have sort of gathered around. A crowd would have, yeah, gathered around. Yeah, I think that makes sense. You don't think it's referring to the donkey? I mean, maybe. I love that donkey. The donkey's part of the crowd. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see Mary's response as fundamentally different than the response of all the other people? It says the people were amazed and Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. What is the difference between being amazed and treasuring and pondering the information that you've gotten? So, I, first of all, I love the the translation. And in the King James, it's Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. In the mm. CEB, <laughs> I think I, I feel like we might have talked about this last year, but Mary committed these things to memory and considered them oh. carefully. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> she needed a little periodic table of elements. That's what I was thinking. Like, she's got little flashcards about like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're right. The people are amazed and Mary is very, seems very calm and internal here. And, you know, they're in different positions, right? The people have never heard this thing before. And so they've just witnessed this outdoor birth. And then now these shepherds come in and say, hey, we saw an angel army. And they said this kid is the savior. Like for them, this is the first time they're hearing it. And surely it's, you know, like you would you would be amazed. And that would be, you know, surprised and upset. Like I, one imagines a very sort of emotional response there. Mary, of course, had talked to Gabriel nine months ago or however long it's been and sort of knew all of this already, Mm -hmm. but here she's getting confirmation about things. So up until now, you kind of think people have been sort of trusting like Mary's like, no, for real (laughs) y'all. I saw an angel and like, I became pregnant by the Holy spirit (laughs) and this kid's going to be special, but she's the only one who has that knowledge. Right. And then suddenly here are these people coming and saying, no, all of this stuff is true. We saw it too. And so, like, in a sense of having confirmation from the community seems really important in my in my yeah. mind. What do you think yeah. about that difference? No, I, I, I agree with everything that you're saying. And I'm wondering whether Mary is also getting some new information with each. You know, she, Gabriel came and spoke to her directly. And then she, Elizabeth 
spoke to her. And oh, I yeah. think it was when Elizabeth spoke to her, that's when this infant in the womb was first referred to as the Lord. That's or right. That's her right. Lord. Mm-hmm. And then in this text, we have sort of the coming together of the idea of Messiah and Lord. I don't know. Like, I wonder if Mary is still piecing together herself the enormity of what is happening, you know? I love that. And uh, and I love it in two different ways. One is that sort of growth that you're talking about from like from Mary herself to Mary's family to the broader community. So you've got this kind of spreading of the ring of knowledge, mm-hmm. but then also the like maybe a, a shift in the depth of her understanding. I mm-hmm. love that, that she's sort of slowly coming to understand the magnitude. So when the angel appeared to Mary, he had said, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of David, his father. Which, I mean, when Gabriel spoke to Mary, that sounded to me like it it could be a human Messiah. Yeah. Which is a big deal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but is a thing that could happen in the worldview of a pious Jewish yeah. person. And so here the word Lord is really key f- key for you. Yeah. For me, yeah. yes. I this feels right. it feels really pivotal. Yeah. And when Elizabeth said it, it was my Lord, right? It wasn't is that yes, what you're saying? It was so, my Lord. So which is a step mm-hmm. on the way, but still could be understood as just a like an honorific. Where yeah. here maybe what you've got is actually the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate that the text gives Mary those those little steps up to this because this would be a lot of inf- it's each step of it is a lot of information to yeah. take in, but yeah, humans need a minute to yeah. <laughs> sit with new information. Yeah. All right, friend, we have come to the end of our narrative lectionary reading today. This most fantastic story, most fantastically told in the Peanuts Christmas yeah. episode. What message would you want to pull out for listeners at this moment, this year, this reading? of this very famous text. Yeah. I'll just say in case the editing does not go well, (laughs) this peaceful pastoral text uh, is being read in my house in the context of a leaf blower right outside my window. And so if you hear that, like, silent night, holy night, (laughs) leaf blower (laughs) afternoon, whatever it might be. Yeah. I mean, when we were talking with the Bible Worm Collaborative about this text, and one of the things I said is, I don't know, like, if you're, like, trying to make this story new again for yourself every year and, like, appreciate the magnitude of what's happening in this story when the same text gets read, you know, for your whole life you hear this text on Christmas. And I I have struggled a little bit with that. But then I think, you know, maybe it doesn't need to be new every time (laughs) <laughs> like, this is a pretty fundamental story, which conveys something really important and central in the understanding of who Jesus is. In my mind, when I read this text, like, the things that's standing out to me right now is this contrast that we're seeing between the, like, official structures, like, here's the emperor calling a census, here's, like, we're trying to get the tax rolls right, like, we're calling, you know, an, an empire-wide, like, basically a political directive. And in this context of these big imperial machinations, we have the birth of this little baby in a manger outside of the center of religious and political power, the angelophany to some shepherds working the night shift in the middle of the night out in a field who encounter the army of God who nobody ever sees. And yet they have this 
this experience. And it's just reminding me of the extent to which Christmas, which can be so tamed and so consumer consumerized and so mm-hmm. politicized and so status quo oriented, is really about shifting centers of power to people among whom power is not really expected. And so, you know, I, I read this story every year in the context of my Mercy Church community, who are mostly homeless folks who are working the night shift, who, you know, are making it day to day. And there is this sense in which it is often thought among folks that people like the Mercy Church community don't necessarily have anything to contribute that things that are important happen closer to Mm -hmm. centers of power Mm -hmm. and authority. And this text, I think, leads us in the other direction, which is to say sometimes the clearest revelations of what God is up to in the world take place in the most unexpected places and with the most unexpected people. And so we ought to pay attention to them because you imagine that the important people, you know, you know, they weren't in the field and you imagine they weren't probably at the manger when the announcement was made. And so they're the last people that have any idea what God is up to. So I love that about this text, that this these huge claims that are being made about, you know, Savior, Messiah, Lord, are being made totally outside the structures that control the understanding of what Savior, Messiah, and Lord mean. That seems re- really important to me this year. Yeah. I love that. And I really, I especially love how throughout this reading, you have given us those sort of dual planes of reading, one of which is theological and one of one of which is political and yeah. you know dealing with the the powers that be on earth and how we put those two things together. That's right. What do you see when you read this text this year? I see not wholly different from what you see, but maybe with a little bit of a different uh flavoring. Yeah. The whole God's honest truth does not manifest in one person, mm. even when that person is Mary. I love that. And that there's no, like, <laughs> we're just, like, people can just, there's no one person who can get to the whole truth of something without also taking in other people's truths and what they know from whatever their experience in the world has been. Yeah. And I love how Mary just sort of goes goes through her experiences and, and takes in the new information and just kind of ponders it and doesn't necessarily feel like she has to do anything with it right now yeah. and doesn't aggressively pursue getting more information, but just sort of is, you know, approaches all of these fairly outlandish claims as with with like some gentle curiosity and some, you know, like, oh, I have to think about that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't know. I just, she doesn't try to take control over the situation and wanting to take control over the situation would be very reasonable. Oh, I mean, yeah. she just had this baby and she's young and she's about to get married i mean the situation must feel totally out of control to her but she i don't know she just she's able to keep taking in truth from all different sources and i think that's a hard thing to do and a great model for communal living yeah i love that because i when as you're talking i'm imagining like what would i do if an angel showed up to me (laughs) and gave me like an inside scoop about something and like i'm a four on the enneagram so i would be like i know things that nobody else knows like i'm the most (laughs) unique and special person and i would not listen to anybody else i'd be like yeah you think you had an angel experience but that's so so funny because i'm a five so i would be like i need to research this (laughs) (laughs) give me more information yeah (gasps) So, yeah, I know I love what you're saying there about Mary as staying attuned to her community, realizing that there is always more she can learn 
I, I love that. I think that's, I think that's really important. Well, we've come to the end of our Christmas Eve reading. We have. This was fun. This was fun. Next up is uh, continuing in this chapter, picking up on the next verse. No gap at all. No gap. <laughs> yeah. No gap. So the story Love of Jesus. Love these is... gospel readings just all the way through. Yeah. So we're right. really reading the story of Jesus's presentation in the temple in Luke 2, 21 to 38 next time. Sounds good. All right, Y'all Amy. Have a, a good week, a good couple of days. I'll talk to you soon. See you next time. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this special extended episode of Bible Worm. If you'd like to get access to extended episodes every week, just join our Patreon at the extended worm level or higher. You'll also find other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more starting at just $4 per month. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We are grateful to all our supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois. Join us again next week when we'll be discussing Luke chapter 2, verses 21 to 38. Until then, keep on digging.